Please turn with me now to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, Luke nine twenty-eight. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went out up unto the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. Now it happened on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, that a great multitude met him. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out, saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him, so that he foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. And they did not understand the saying, and it was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him. And said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you will be great. Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. Now when it came to pass, now it came to pass that when The time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them. And said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Indeed, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we desperately need understanding your word. 
We very often come to your word as if we were certainly going to understand it on our own. But here these disciples who were personally with Jesus, these words they did not understand. The very words that Jesus said for them that ought to sink into their, their hearts and their ears, they didn't listen, they didn't understand, and they soon went astray. Lord God, we pray that through the power of your Spirit, truly these words might sink into our ears and in our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we come in Luke chapter 9 to the section between verses 46 and 56, these 10, 11 verses. And in this we have a, a series of incidents that point to one thing. The disciples are lifted up in pride. That's displayed most directly, and they're arguing among themselves as to who would be the greatest, but it's also seen in their forbidding this one who is casting out demons, not because he was calling upon some false god or some false messiah, or he was teaching some false theology, but only because he was not one of them. And it's seen when some of the disciples want to call down fire, as if they were Elijah himself, or had this power in their back pocket. Now, it's no strange thing that men are prideful. That's one of the, the worst parts about our fallen condition. I was just speaking to the seminary students on this issue, the issue of, of original sin. And there's many things, unfortunately, about original sin. And this idea of corruption and how that our, our hearts and our minds are corrupted. And our whole self is our understanding. We don't think of things correctly. We don't process them. We don't observe them correctly. We don't recall them right. Our memory is corrupted. We think, of, we, we think of things that we shouldn't, that we're reminded of wicked and evil things. We can't get them out of our mind. But the things that we ought to remember, like scripture, or the catechism, or, or other things that we ought to know, we can't remember them to save our lives. This is our reality. This is our situation. So it's no strange thing that people would be lifted up in pride. We have this selective memory We think of the the good things about ourselves and we forget all the bad. We're blind to our worst faults. We focus all of our attention on the few relatively bright spots. And then on that basis, we stack ourselves up to, to other people. We compare ourselves. And the strange thing, you see, that's so it's no strange thing that that they might be prideful. The strange thing is that Jesus has just been at pains to help them to understand this condition. Right before the transfiguration, he told them, verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And he says this, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Meaning, don't seize upon your rights. Don't claim what is coming to you. Do not lift yourself up. Do not seek for greatness. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Again, we're reminded that the cross was so shameful that some of the ancients uh, said that in polite company that the word should not even be mentioned. The topic of crucifixion should never come up. He says you've got to take up this hated and, and most humble thing imaginable and follow me. And even more importantly, we have the verses just before on the cusp of this section in 44 and 45. Let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. He has to say that because, you know, they'd been humbled before, but they keep lifting themselves back up in pride. 
And they keep lifting themselves back up in pride. And as the people themselves were amazed at this, he says they were all amazed at the majesty of God. While everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did. They're exalting. Jesus has this word of caution. He says, now look, let these words, don't get carried away here. Let these words, the son of man is about to be betrayed in the hands of men. And don't think that your situation is going to be any better. But they did not understand this saying. And their actions would prove the fact that they did not understand that saying at all. They didn't understand it. Well, that's why I call this sermon struggling with humility. Because it was their struggle and it is my struggle. And I think it is your struggle. And what we have to learn is that Christ was truly great. He was great. But he was in the, what we call the estate of humiliation. I don't know if you've heard that term before, but it's what our doctrinal standards speak of, the estate of humiliation. He laid aside his glory. It's pretty much just what David Gilbert preached last Sunday, right? In Philippians chapter 2, he was great. He didn't consider it robbery to be equal to God because he was God. But he laid those things aside and he took on the form of a servant and he served he was a servant. And he lived in that estate of humiliation throughout all of his time on earth. And brothers and sisters, guess what? We, as long as we are on this earth, are also in the estate of humiliation right along with Christ. We're not possibly going to be greater than our master. We are not going to be more wonderful and lifted up than Christ himself was in this world. But yet it remains a strangely hard thing for us to do as it was with the disciples. So we struggle with humility. I have these three fairly simple points. The first one is that the disciples were mean but proud. Secondly, the child was small and humble. And thirdly, Christ was great but humble. So first, the disciples were mean but proud. And we see, I would... I would have this as a series of exhibits. As someone trying to prove a point in a court of law, you have these exhibits. Exhibit A, exhibit B. Well, that's what we have here. The, these three incidents. Exhibit A, in verse 46. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. I mean, that's so incredible. That is so crazy. You, you almost want to put it away from you and say that, you know, I wouldn't do that. And, and is what you, just to tease that out, is what you're saying is that, I'm much too humble to have possibly fallen into that particular fault. Is that what you mean? Sometimes I think that is what we mean. We're too humble. Well, you've just unfortunately demonstrated your pride, your spiritual pride in this. And we have to, if we, please, let's, let's not, we, we are sometimes very rough on the disciples, but let's not be too rough. I think they well represent the average Christian. I think we should see ourselves in these things. And the question is, why were they in it? How did they ever get in this situation? Well, in addition to all that I've said about the natural condition of man's pride, and the number one problem with that is blindness. That's why Jesus is always talking about the situation of particularly the, disciples, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, Pharisees, but also of the disciples and their blindness. They can't really see the way that they should. They're not aware of their own sin. They're not even aware of their own pride. They don't recognize these things. It's a problem with man's sin. But in addition to that, they haven't yet figured out Jesus' situation, right? 
They keep getting Jesus' situation and his identity wrong. They know, thankfully, they know enough that he is the son of God, he is the Messiah, but they don't really not, they're not clear about what his mission is. They're not really clear about what he's doing on this earth. And therefore, they keep th- having wrong expectations. They keep thinking that he's going to set up an earthly kingdom. He's just on the cusp of declaring his kingship on this world, and, or at least in the land of Israel, and that, well, frankly, then he's going to install us as his cabinet, as his assistants. And we're, we're going to have that. You, you see, so there were practical matters to be discussed here. I mean, the, the kingdom is coming. Look at him. I mean, you see the majesty of God. It is just a matter of time. And the question is, who's, who's going to be the minister of finance? And, and who's going to be the, the minister of state and all the rest of these things? And the, part, and the defense secretary. Well, as I say, they're getting something basically wrong. Jesus' mission was a mission of humility. Because he was going to suffer in this world. That was the whole point. His point of coming, his point of taking on human flesh was precisely so that he could suffer and die. If he wanted to just show off his glory, he did not need to do that. The worst thing he could have possibly done in showing off his glory and majesty would be to take on human flesh. And then to add to it a long list of things which we'll we'll mention later on. A long list of things which only added to his humiliation in this world. But it was necessary. That's the nature of what he was doing. He came to pay for our sins. He had to suffer. He had to be in this situation to be handed over and to be condemned and to be scourged and to be mocked and to be crucified. He had to do these things. He was in this state of humiliation. And their situation as his disciples, they were going to share it too. You remember when they, the two brothers prompted by their, their mother, come and say, we want to be on your left hand and on your right. We want those positions of greatness. Everyone else has been kind of jockeying for them, and we're going to, you know, our mother's going to help us on this one and ask, you know, I want to be on the left and the right. And, and Jesus shakes his head and he says, I don't think you know what you're asking for. You want to share in my condition? You want to be just like me? I'm about to drink a cup. It's a cup of humiliation. And it's a cup of God's wrath. You don't want to share in that. But I'll tell you, you're going to share in some aspect of it. You are going to take up your cross. You are going to share in that suffering. You are going to be martyred for my sake. And most of the disciples were. We know that. Well, his condition was one of humility. They needed to share in it, but they kept forgetting it. And, you know, the strange thing, again, even when Jesus rebuked them, they, they, they didn't seem to grasp it. Before the transfiguration, he called Peter Satan. You, you would think that he would recognize his situation before God when he called, is just called Satan. And then Jesus said in verse 41, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear you? And he was not talking about the people around him primarily. He was talking about the disciples. Faithless, perverse, how long will I bear with you? And brothers and sisters, we have to understand our real situation before God. He, he does not look at us as we are in ourselves and say, these people are so great. I can't believe I have the privilege of having them in my church. He, he doesn't think of us in that way in, as we are in ourselves. Oh, faithless, perverse generation, how long shall I bear with you? Now, praise God, that's not the end of the story. We know as he makes us, 
There's great joy and anticipation. He cannot wait to be with us in heaven, in our perfected state. But as we are in ourselves, let's not, let's not kid ourselves. So, exhibit A is certainly that in short order, after having been called, O faithless and perverse generation, and Jesus wondering how long he has to bear having to live around them, exhibit A is that they then decide to spend some time in serious discussion, not in how they're going to repent of trying to be wiser than the Son of God and saying, I don't think that's a good idea going to the cross, I've got a better way. Not in how they should humble themselves to the dust for their unbelief and faithfulness as they had just been rebuked for, But who would be the greatest? Exhibit A. They were both mean and proud. Exhibit B is this. Even after Jesus' rebuke, still in verse 49, John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. Now, I'll say that people have used this for justification for all kinds of things, Uh, ecumenical movements, you know, this is not warrant for the world council of churches because there's no false teaching involved here at all. The issue is not whether someone was doing something wrong in the name of Jesus. They were casting out demons. The issue was not whether they were ministering in the name of someone else. No, they were ministering in Jesus' name. The problem from the disciples' point of view was because he does not follow with us, with us. I mean, it would be even one thing if they'd said they don't follow you. That would be a problem. But with us. We are the ones who should have, we're the only ones that should have those kind of privileges, Lord. You sent us out to cast out demons. We have those privileges. And we're going to shut down anyone else who's trying to edge in our territory. It's jealousy. And Jesus responds in verse 50. Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. That's the voice of humility. It does not imagine that we are so special that the only ones who could possibly have it right are those who are with us particularly. Well, you know, Jesus was humble. And in this, he was prefigured in the Old Testament by Moses. I'm going to mention later on, Moses was the most humble of men. But there's a situation, a very similar situation in Numbers 11 27. A young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men, answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Then Moses said to him, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets, and the Lord would put his spirit upon them. See, true humility does not look for being so special that only I get this wonderful, special privilege, but it rejoices in that others have been given such things by God as well. Well, exhibit B is that one of the few places where they ever find someone actually embracing the name of Jesus Christ rather than cursing it or trying to have him arrested, that they want to forbid him from doing a good thing. So that's exhibit B. Then we go into exhibit C. In verse 51, now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he he steadfastly set his face to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. And they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? 
you want us to command fire? Not even, do you want us to pray to God, but to command fire as if this was absolutely in their back pocket to do? And then they add to it, just as Elijah did. Now, Elijah was one of the greatest men who ever lived. So great that he had the privilege, these almost singular privilege of being taken directly up to God, to heaven in a chariot of fire. He did not actually see bodily death. And he had the even greater privilege of being part of the transfiguration along with Moses. A singular privilege indeed. And they casually say, do you want us to be like Elijah and just command fire down? It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And this is what the Lord says, verse 55. But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. It's a question, what kind of spirit they were of? What kind of spirit are we of? What Matthew 5, 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And if that was true of them to come into the kingdom of heaven, at what point does it change? The poor in spirit are the ones who receive Christ gladly. The poor in spirit are the ones who in humility receive him as their only hope. The poor in spirit are the ones who do not bring anything to the table at all, but gladly receive mercy as undeserving sinners. And the poor in spirit have mercy on other sinners like themselves. They're not quick to call down judgment and condemnation. You don't know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's life, but to save them. Because, you know, he is in the spirit of this situation of humiliation. Now, one day he is going to do precisely that. One day he is going to come and to judge the entire earth as it so just rightly needs to be judged. But the day is not now. The day of salvation continues. And for the moment then, all of us, his disciples, we carry on in that same spirit. We're not coming to destroy this world, but to save it, if by all means possible. If we can bring this message of forgiveness in Christ to people. They just weren't understanding their situation. Now, that was Exhibit C. I I wish I could say that was the last time that this was ever an issue with them. But sadly, there's actually Exhibit D. It's not in our chapter. It's later on. In Luke 22, almost to the end of this book, Luke 22, starting in verse 24, they do it again. This is after the Last Supper. And they say, now there is also a dispute among them. The first dispute, by the way, do you know what, when it says there is also a dispute, do you know what the previous dispute was, uh, five minutes before that? Was which of them was going to betray him? Okay, that was the question. So which of us is going to betray you? Then the next one, there is also a dispute among them as to who should be considered the greatest. Listen to how Jesus responds. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one who serves. They continued to struggle with this issue of humility On and on. And what Jesus says 
is that our model must not be that of the world. Those who wish to be great exercise in their pride their greatness and lord it over the rest. But it must not be so among us, brethren. He who is greatest should be as the younger and he who governs as he who serves because that is Christ's situation in this world and that is our situation. We know Philippians 2, we know what the mind of Christ is, isn't it? That he who would be great must first humble himself and be as a servant. Well, that was our long first point. It had all to do with the fact that though these disciples were very mean, small-minded, and wretched in many ways, yet they were lifted up in their pride. But secondly, we see that the child was small and humble. Because this is how Jesus wants to contradict them. This is how Jesus wants to give them a different model. In verse 47, And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him. And it was a little child, rather than a man, rather than even a self-sufficient youth, it was a child, a little child. Now, we don't say that children are immune to pride. Unfortunately, they're not. Are you, children? Sometimes you can think pretty highly of yourselves, can't you? So you're not immune to pride. But at least the little children among you, you're pretty sure that you're a little child, aren't you? You don't imagine that you're just going to go declare kingdom. You don't even imagine that you can live apart from mommy and daddy, do you? You recognize that you have to receive from their hand. You recognize that you're dependent upon them. And that's the point that's being made here. There's a limit to the illusion of grandeur. You know, I don't think that that little child was going to jump into the debate that the disciples were having a minute ago and say, well, actually, I'm the greatest. Uh, He's probably not going to go up to that man who is setting people free from demonic oppression in the name of Jesus and tell him he better stop because he's not with him. And I'm fairly certain that he was not planning on calling down fire on an entire village because of their lack of hospitality. So it's not that they were perfectly free from all pride or sin. It was just that their illusions of grandeur had a certain definite limit because he was a little child. And this is Jesus' example to them and that is Jesus' example to us. That's the prototype, the little child. Jesus says in verse 48, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And here we have to understand what's, what's later on in the book as Jesus explains a little bit more what he's trying to say in Luke eighteen seventeen. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. You want to know how you're going to enter the kingdom of God? You want to know how it's going to happen? The answer is you've got to receive it as a little child. You do not receive it as a philosophy professor, parsing every word, trying to catch Jesus out like the Pharisees and Sadducees were. You receive it as a little child in trust and in humility. Because, ladies and gentlemen, it takes great humility to to follow Christ. To become a Christian in the first place, you have to be an abject, absolute abject poverty of thought and mind as we come to him. And we don't come with any great accomplishment. We do not come thinking that we have actually fulfilled his law in order that we might merit salvation but rather we say we have utterly failed and our only hope 
is to cling to Christ in faith. Now that takes humility. That takes a lot of humility. And we must come to him as little children. Childlike humility, faith, and also dependence. And we carry on in that way. We carry on as little children. Not being childish. No, we want to go on to godly maturity. But godly maturity demands that we have forever a childlike dependence upon him. And that in our own minds we remember that we are nothing. We are dust. We are worms of the earth, aren't we? But Christ is everything. Well, this is the situation. We must receive the kingdom of God in that way. We know from other places that those who receive Jesus' disciples of whatever age receive Jesus. And so when our reception of other disciples actually has everything to do with our reception of Jesus himself. And if we're so lifted up in pride that we cannot receive other people who believe in Jesus, then we're not certainly not being childlike. We are being utterly apart from that. And so the, the explanation then, for he who is least among you will be great, because you cannot possibly be great in the sight of God as long as you're delusional. That's the thing. That's what pride is. You're delusional. You're, if you're wretched, at least know that you're wretched. That's, that's what we have in Luke eighteen thirteen. The tax collector, you know the situation. The tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He couldn't change his condition. He couldn't lie about his condition. The least thing he could do is just be honest about his condition. He was a sinner, and he was honest about it. And he can cling to Christ in faith. He who is least among you will be great. Now that's how you enter into the kingdom of heaven, in your humility, and that's indeed how you become great. Because it is the greatest sign, in fact, of godliness and of sanctification that we are, holy, we are humble and we grow in our humility. Well, that was the child. This is the picture of someone who was, was not very great. He was small, but he knew it. But thirdly, Christ was great, but yet he was humble. Now, there's no question that Christ was great. I think we should remember what we began with in this gospel as we began this series a while ago. The very start of this gospel in Luke 1.32 in the, the Song of Mary. It said, He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Do you understand? There's no illusion of grandeur. There's no illusion necessary. It is only the reality, the unsurpassed reality of the greatness of Christ. Of his reign there will be no end. Of the increase of his kingdom. It will carry on forever and ever. And then, but then, we have these words in our, our own chapter. Let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. He's great. He couldn't possibly be any greater. There's nothing that he could say that would be a boast. Can you imagine that situation that Christ had? What, could he, what is the most fantastic boast you can ever imagine someone on earth ever, ever saying? If Jesus said it ten times over, it would yet be true. And on the other hand, he's going to let himself be betrayed into the hands of men. And another place is explained a little bit more fully in Mark 10. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, 
and deliver him to the Gentiles, they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. That's about as low as it goes. What is he saying? Contrary to whatever expectation they might have harbored, he, he's not going to be embraced as a king of Israel. He's going to be rejected. He's not going to be responded. He's going to be condemned. He's not going to be rewarded. And he, there's no earthly rewards that go along with, it, with the rest of them. He's going to be mocked rather than lauded and applauded. Let these words sink down into your ears. He was great, but he was also humble. He had to be. Again, as I say, he was in this state of humiliation. I'll just read from the larger catechism. What is the estate of Christ's humiliation? The estate of Christ's humiliation was that low condition wherein he, for our sakes, emptied himself of his glory, took upon him the form of a servant, and his conception and birth, life, death, and after his life until his resurrection. For our sakes, he emptied himself of all of his glory. He was great, but he humbled himself. It goes on in the next question, how did Christ humble himself? Christ humbled himself in his conception and birth, in that being from all eternity the Son of God in the bosom of the Father, he was pleased in the fullness of time to become the Son of Man made of a woman of low estate, to be born of her with diverse circumstances of more than ordinary abasement. How did Christ humble himself in this life? Christ humbled himself in this life by subjecting himself to the law, which he perfectly fulfilled, by, con- by conflicting with the indignities of this world, temptations of Satan, infirmities of his flesh, whether common to the nature of man or particularly accompanying his low condition. And how did Christ humble himself in his death? Christ humbled himself in his death in that having been betrayed by Judas, his friend, forsaken by his own disciples, scorned and rejected by the world, condemned by Pilate and tormented by his persecutors, also having conflicted with the terrors of death and the powers of darkness, felt and bore the weight of God's wrath. Enduring the painful, shameful, and cursed death of the cross. It couldn't get any lower. Christ in his exaltation, Christ in his glory, Christ in his greatness, he couldn't get any greater than what he was. There's no way he could arrogate to himself anything more than his greatness. Yet in his humility, there was nothing more he could be humbled. What thing could he possibly be humiliated with that he was not humiliated in the course of his life? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And I need not repeat all that was said last week. This is Christ. He couldn't have been any more great. Yet he humbled himself even to the point of death, death on the cross. And so, brothers and sisters, it must be with his disciples. John fifteen twenty. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If, your situ- if Christ's situation was of, of humility and humble estate, then so it's going to be with us. And there's no point in debating who's going to be great in this world. 
And so my first application is that we ought to embrace the estate of humility. And I would say it this way. We will be humbled. If you're a believer, you will be humbled. You've already been humbled coming into the front door of Christ and the gospel. But you will be humbled. The easy way by his word is, as God says these things to you. And you receive them and you say, boy, that doesn't sound comfortable. I don't like that idea that I'm such a sinner. But it's true. And I'll receive it and I'll humble myself by those words. Or you can do it the hard way. And for most of us, that's the only way that works. Is that Christ, and as a, a good uh, husband, as, and the father, as a good father of his children, that he humbles us in various ways. 1 Peter 5, 5, Likewise, you younger people, submit to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive one to another and be clothed with humility. Why? For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Or James 4, 6, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's very, very clear, isn't it? He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And let me ask you just simply, which one of those two categories do you want to place yourself in? The one that Almighty God is actively resisting and setting himself against to bring low, or the other category that God is granting grace to and is seeking to lift up? You decide for yourselves. The issue is that we might embrace humility. We should embrace it. And secondly, more specifically, we must share in Christ's state of humility now because it is not forever. I want us to understand it is now for a period of time. Right now, we are no greater than our master and if he's going to be rejected, if he's not going to be recognized in this world, don't think we're going to be recognized in this world. If he wasn't acceptable to them, why do we think we're going to be acceptable? Why do we think that we're going to be applauded in this world? It's impossible. You can't do it if you're being faithful. If it's happening, the Bible warns you, watch out. Because you're probably not being faithful if every man thinks that you're great. That's the thing. We don't go out of our way to be odious, certainly not. We, we love people more than anyone else ever does. But in the mere performance of our duties, in the mere situation of our faithfulness, we cannot possibly expect for everyone to like us and embrace us and to think well of us. It can't happen. We must share in Christ's state of humility now because the whole church of Jesus Christ on this earth is in that state of humiliation with Christ. We have glory, by the way, but it's veiled. And there may be rare moments, kind of like the transfiguration, in which there are glimpses of the, the church's true glory. But on the whole, there's not going to be recognition, not going to be rewards, only rejection and suffering at the hands of the world. Not to say that there won't be victories, by the way. Oh, there will be victories. Just as Christ had great victories over Satan and all the powers of darkness in this world, likewise it will be. He says we're going to go on and do greater things, even in this world. But those victories will be by the way of the cross, in humility, not in outward greatness. Now I want to say that, I want to emphasize though that last word now. We must, as a church, share in Christ's state of humility now because they were right about eventual rewards. They were right about eventual being lifted up and, and being great. They were right, by the way, even in standing in judgment over Christ's enemies. We know that's going to happen on the last day, that we will judge angels. We will judge Satan himself. We will share in that judgment 
but just not now. Not now. That's why patience is such a cardinal Christian virtue, because it's just not now. All those things that you might desire for greatness, all those things about recognition and rewards and being able to judge Christ's enemies, all the rest of it, it has to wait. It has to wait. And that's why Revelation 14, 12 says, Here is the patience of the saints, because we've got to wait until then. Thirdly, we will share in Christ's glory to come, and I want to make that very clear. We will share. We will be great, just not now. You know, you, you think that Jesus might have said something like, you know, I, you know, I mentioned these three exhibits even in chapter 9, and I probably could have mentioned another one. And then there's another exhibit, exhibit D, that happens later on in chapter 22 after the, the Last Supper. And you might not think that Jesus was going to say something like, you know, guys, we spoke about this before. We, we just had the Last Supper. I'm actually now in the process of being betrayed, handed over to be crucified for, for your sakes. And you are debating who is greatest? He would be well within his rights to say, let me save you the trouble. You're the most pathetic sinners I've ever seen and I've had it with you. You're not going to stay with me in my trouble anyway, so I'm just going to leave you now. He, he could have done that. But what's amazing to me is that he didn't do that. What he goes on to say in Luke twenty-two twenty-eight is this. I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed upon me. These people who at that moment were bickering and discussing who would be greatest... Jesus Christ and his incredible condescension and grace and mercy to us says, I will be bestowing upon you a kingdom. Yes, even you. He's going to give a kingdom to people like us, brothers and sisters. Don't ever forget that to people just as wretched as, as us, just as undeserving. You're going to fear not, little flock. You're going to inherit the kingdom. And then there will be no state of humiliation then. Humility, yes. We will not think of ourselves of any higher than we actually are. But we will have been brought to such a high state that it will be exceedingly hard to overstate it. It will be exceedingly hard to overestimate our situation. People here like to hint at having more than what their actual means are. But there we'll have title to infinite riches. There's no statement we could possibly make that wouldn't be true about our wealth. People here like to hint at having more than what their actual friends are, greater and more and better and all that. But there, the king of the universe calls us friends, and so we are. People here like to hint at having more than their actual position, but there, we will reign with Christ. We will actually reign with him. There's no overstating our position. People here like to hint at more than their actual class. There, the will be part of the family of God, not just the royal family, the divine family, the bride of Christ. And there, brothers and sisters, the fairy tale comes true. There's no fairy tale ever that could be any greater than that. Nothing whatsoever could possibly be denied to us. But just not yet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are amazed at so many things. We're amazed at our own 
foolishness and short-sightedness and meanness that we are lifted up in pride. We don't receive your words. We are rebuked and we carry on in our merry way. We do things that are intolerable in your sight. Yet, Lord, you are so merciful and so good that you grant the kingdom even to such miserable sinners as us. Lord, how we pray that you grant to us humility. How we pray that your spirit would work upon us, that these words truly would sink down into our hearts. That Christ was in the state of humiliation and all of his people in this world, all of the church that remains here, yes, we must also be in this state of humiliation. How we pray, Lord, that we would indeed receive this kingdom as little children. And if that there are any who have not gone through that door, that, Lord, you would humble their pride and they would receive of Christ, receive his perfect righteousness, rather than come with their filthy rags. And, Lord, we pray that we would be patient. That, Lord, as long as a day of salvation remains, we would not seek to call down fire on enemies real or imagined, but rather, Lord, we would seek blessing, we would we would rather give them the word of God that they might be saved. And that we would not seek great things for ourselves now, knowing, Lord, that as we humble ourselves, you yourself will undertake to lift us up. And that soon enough we shall reign. Soon enough we shall have greatness without end. And we pray, Lord, therefore, that you grant us patience until that time. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.